Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. I'm excited to welcome to the show today a prolific filmmaker whose work has left an indelible mark on genre cinema since he first burst onto the scene in the 80s. With a resume that includes fright flicks such as Creepazoids, Nightmare Sisters, The Brotherhood movies, and several entries in the Puppet Master franchise, he's blazed a trail that has earned him a bevy of enthusiastic fans. Through his own production company, Rapid Heart Pictures, he continues to regularly release new films, as well as frequently direct thrilling network projects for the likes of Lifetime and Ion. Please welcome to the show, David Dakota. Hello, Michael. Hi, David. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. Thank you for the invite. I'm a big fan of yours and a very, very big fan of the show. So I'm so excited to be here. Well, I cannot wait to dig into your very prolific career. Over 130 movies directed? Well, 130 that I'll admit to directing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then it sounds like we've got a conversation ahead. And I'm going to keep doing it till I get it right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, why don't we kick off the show the same way I start every show with the same first question I ask every guest. And it is simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Uh, What's your entry point? What do you think the appeal is? Why do you think horror matters? But why horror? Um, wow. Well, I, like, like any kid, I think that, you know, when you're very young and at least when I was young, which was a hundred years ago, but, um, I hope I love those late night, scary movies that were on sinister cinema in Portland, Oregon. And I just kind of like things that scared me when I was a kid. And as I grew older, I just continued to like them and enjoy them. And, They were real oddball, very strange, usually unpredictable and uh, thrills and chills and uh, kind of delivered the roller coaster way of, uh, I guess, cinematic entertainment. But I really enjoyed the whole concept of, you know, just. Some of the subtext in some of these movies, even as a kid, I was just like fascinated by them and and, uh, just like, what what does that really mean? Are they saying something very very queer maybe or very <laughs> twisted or something and it um so i just sort of uh, <clears throat> uh fell in love with the with the genre and i i think the first horror film i saw <clears throat> on tv was probably night of the living dead um and, uh, and then but theatrically was the uh hammer double feature um uh, Dracula, Prince of Darkness, and Plague of the Zombies. I saw at the, at the Lombard Theater in Portland, Oregon. That scared the fucking shit out of me. That's I just a did, great double feature. Oh, it's an incredible double feature, seeing that with an audience. But also, I was like, I think, nine years old or something. So it was like, uh, but I just got addicted to scares and, you know, and all that crazy stuff. I wasn't really much into the violence mm-hmm. or any kind of mean-spiritedness, which you can find in a lot of, um, horror movies, especially nowadays. Um, but I was into this, the taking me on a very bizarre journey into something very dark. And so it was very interesting to me. So, you know, as I grew older and, um, got to see more R rated movies, um, I, um, was lucky enough to be at the opening night, uh, premiere in Portland, Oregon of John Carpenter's Halloween in 1978, which, because it was released, is sort of, um, you know, uh, uh, state by state, essentially, was not released nationally. I saw it Christmas of 78, so I had missed the... Nobody ever heard of this movie. And um, it. we all sat there expecting some schlocky, and um, I've never heard an audience scream louder or more consistently. And I basically, my, my love of the, of the horror genre became sort of 
my love for being a horror filmmaker because I knew I wanted to direct movies and make right. movies. So I said, I think this is the genre to to really because I didn't know you could do what you could do with a horror movie the way John Carpenter did with Halloween. Remember, there was no hype back then, no internet, no nothing. I mean, there was not even any mention in any of the magazines or anything about this movie. So we were all sort of taken aback by the whole thing. I had never even heard of Donald Pleasance at the time. So these were all, you know, people that were fresh faces. And it was just an incredible, incredible excursion to just, but it was also in some cases shameless in that it really delivered the scares. Um, so I was like, oh, my God, this is uh, something else. And um, <clears throat> but then it was the the uh, opening night of the I mean, once Halloween came out, the entire industry started doing these slasher movies. Right. And I, I was a projectionist in the movie theaters by then. By that point at 16, I think I had gotten my first job in the movie theaters and in Portland. And um, but the, and the, I think it was 79 or 80. I think it was 80. Um, the opening night of Friday the 13th. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, which we kind of knew based on the trailer was going to be a real shameless excursion into just trying to squeeze every scare they possibly could out of uh, out of you. I remember watch it was packed audience and we I was going to the 10 o'clock show. I always went to the little show a little later in the evening and um but the eight o'clock show, we were waiting for to, to let out and <clears throat> the theater doors were closed and everything. And it movie was, I think, coming to an end. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly, like just all of a sudden, the, there was a scream from this audience that literally was so loud because it was a packed audience. And it sucked the air out of the theater and the doors on the auditorium shook. From a scare, from a scream. Oh, wow. And so all of us in the lobby waiting to go in looked at each other going, oh, my God, this is going to be a scary movie. But we knew what was coming near the end. So we were all on our edge of our seat. <laughs> and um, when I saw that and um, saw a mint condition, Kevin Bacon in a blue Speedo <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, the ultimate bitch fight between um, between uh, Betsy Palmer and. Uh, Adrian King, uh, at the end, I go, oh, my God, I'm in. This is a guy. <laughs> hot guys and, 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 and bitch fights. Uh, count me in. Uh, and screams and chills and uh, uh, count me in. So, uh, And I kind of feel like hot guys and bitch fights have sort of been a hallmark of your career. <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> I have trademarked it. Um, yeah, I'm, uh, I've, I've just completely... Uh, when I saw that movie, I mean, I almost like it in a way it's so different than Halloween, but I, I like it so much because it was just so shameless, it you is. know, um, and um, um, and I kind of like that because I like over the top mm-hmm. sort of in your face, you know, uh, not it's the opposite of demure. And this is what I I mean, at the, around the time of that of, of Friday the 13th, I was I got to see a double feature of. Um, Female Trouble in Desperate Living. Hmm. And I had, not, I had not seen Pink Flamingos. I had heard of it. I had heard of Divine. They had spoofed Divine on the SCTV TV show. Right, John, John Candy. Nobody yeah. remembers that. It's just like so bizarre. Um, I wish it was in the documentary, but I, I'm, pr- I'm sure Jeffrey didn't, couldn't get the clip or something. But I knew, but when I saw those two movies, I realized that the bar had been set right. by this amazing filmmaker named John Waters that... There was no bar that right. you could literally do whatever you wanted to do. 
So it was a real, you know, th that year was quite something. It's interesting, really quick, Michael, is that, but my favorite films of that year were Ordinary People and The Great Santini. So, <laughs> so I guess I, I, I'm, I'm all over the place, I guess. No, and I think that film fans are, though. You know, when you love movies, movies are just so essential to your mm -hmm. core that even if you veer towards genre material, mm -hmm. A good movie is a good movie, mm -hmm. always. And I was going to ask you earlier when you said by the time you saw Halloween, you already were thinking, I want to be a filmmaker. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Do you remember the point in your life before that when, you know, as an active viewer of films that mm -hmm. you realized this is what I want to do? Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Really? Yeah. I saw that movie and I said, wait a second. I mean, if 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 they're making movies in candy factories as a kid, they was like, count me in. <laughs> but what really I think set it over was just Erwin Allen, mm -hmm. uh, the Towering Inferno, and um, not Side Adventure, the Towering Inferno, and then Mark Robson's uh, Earthquake. So it was because it was very shameless that they were competing with television, so they were really over the top some of these movies. Right. But then ultimately, um, it. But that it, it wasn't attainable at that level right. as an entry level filmmaker. So um, then I discovered uh, Roger Corman and uh, that was 1975's Crazy Mama. Oh, Crazy Mama is great. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, so two of your big entry points are disaster movies, Earthquake mm -hmm. and Towering Inferno. Uh, if you were to direct a disaster movie, mm -hmm. what disaster would you want it to be? Um, Boy, <laughs> probably... Nothing to do with water. Um, probably nothing to do with fire. I think an earthquake. Because fire and water are practical movie making of <laughs> nightmares. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, with earthquake, all you need to do is shake that camera around, have some styrofoam fall, and have Ava Gardner play Lauren Green's daughter when she's actually 15 years older than Lauren Green. So uh, <laughs> the magic of movies, the magic of movies. So you mentioned meeting Roger Corman, and I know that that was really where your career in cinema began. Well, this is interesting because I, I mean, I'm a mega nerd. OK, okay? I am a mega nerd. But I'm also real mischievous and reveled. I think I'm pretty industrious considering I was a little teenage white trash boy from Portland. I created the Roger Corman fan club after I saw Crazy Mama because I was really into cars. My first car was a 1969 Chevelle Malibu. Uh, I was very much into car chase movies and everything. Eat My Dust to me is one of the greatest films ever made. Um, and I knew that these kind of films would be a good entry point, but I created the Roger Corman fan club, sent him a letter. I've created letterhead even <laughs> sent him letters and I would, and his, his assistant, Gail Ann Hurd would write me back. Wow. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, Karen Dyer and also, uh, Lorette Hayden. And then I said, well, look, I'm going to be in LA with my, I mean, I'm going to be, yeah, I'm going to be in LA with my, with my aunt. Um, and that was 78. I said, can I please meet with Roger and see if and they set up a meeting for me? And I went in, I met with him and uh, he signed my Grand Theft Auto Press book. Um, and uh, we met for about an hour and a half. And he was just getting started or well, maybe it was 79 because he was just getting started shooting Battle Beyond the Stars. Oh. And um, um, but he sat with me for an hour and a half and he said, look, I mean, he because he had not met anybody. That, I mean, nobody he knew he had a lot of fans out there, but not as obsessive as me. <laughs> 
So, I don't think. Um, he seemed very, like, shocked that I would be that interested in his uh, films because I was more interested in his New World pictures as opposed to his early um, Poe pictures and AIP right. pictures, you know. So, although I had his books and all the, the books written about him, um, but he said, look, if you ever move to L.A., there's a job waiting for you. Believe it or not, he said that. Um, and uh, so when I did move to L.A. in Christmas of 80, um, I reported to the lumberyard in Venice, California, which is where his uh, studio was. He retrofitted a, a lumberyard into a movie studio and was prepping, was shooting special effects for a, um, the special effects uh, miniatures for a movie called Escape from New York. Oh, I've and, heard of that. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, and and prepping a movie called Galaxy of Terror. And uh, I reported to um, a young Canadian, uh, enthusiastic Canadian uh, named James Cameron, who essentially ran the entire um, visual effects, miniatures, art direction, anything creative to do with the films he was in charge of. And I also met his car a carpenter on the set by the name of Bill Paxton. Um, I... Um, uh, you know, essentially was an overall PA and I worked in every department and they made, you know, monsters there. They had their editing facilities there. Uh, Gail Ann Hurd was getting ready to produce or I just finished producing her first movie, Smoke, uh, Smokey Bites the Dust with Jimmy McNichol. Um, and, um, and I just, I worked there for about eight months and I worked on Galaxy of Terror. I worked on, a little bit on Forbidden World, um, um, I, I just did basically did, you know, everything that I was told to do as a production assistant. I was 18, 19. Um, and um, so I worked in every department and uh, learned a lot very quickly. So I sort of learned while I earned. I didn't go to college. I barely made it through high school. And what a wild group of people to start your career with. James Cameron, Gail Ann Hurd, Roger Corman, Bill Paxton working as a carpenter on the set. And Zalman King and Robert England and Aaron Moran and all these crazy people. I mean, there's film school, but then there's school on the set of a film. And that's right. a great education right there. It is because you get to you're thrown right into it. Um, and um, um, but, you know, Jim was very tough on everyone, but we all knew he was a genius. So we just sort of dealt with it. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, yeah, it was a great experience. And then I went right from Rogers uh, to work as an assistant. Uh, Roger sent me over. Vim Vendors was in town doing a film called The State of Things. And the production coordinator on it, Steve McMillan, was also the production coordinator on Roller Boogie. Oh, yeah. So he um, said he needed a PA. They called Roger. They sent me over. I worked with Vim. And you want to talk about low budget. That was low budget. Um, and um, what else did I do? I worked for him and I worked for, oh, and I, they, they sent me over to Penelope Spheris. She was directing her first uh, scripted movie called Suburbia. I love Suburbia. Yeah, I was the prop movie. man on that. Oh, wow. I was the prop guy on that for about a week. And I had no idea what I was doing. But there's another one that was low budget. Boy, oh, boy, that was low budget. But I got to meet Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, who were really, there was nobody at the time. But they were very sweet. I remember Flea kept having me spray paint homo power on all the, the I don't know, is this the craziest? Well, homo power is definitely something we can get behind uh, here at Dead for Filth. Now, what's it like being a prop master for, for Penelope Spheris? Well, it was interesting. She was, it was her first scripted uh, movie and, you know, Roger Corman put the, half of the money up for it and the other half was put up by a furniture manufacturer named Burt Dragon. Mm -hmm. And um, Tim Shurstead was the cinematographer and we shot it in Downey. And um, but I only lasted about a week. It was just uh, I was completely um, um, I was just it was just 
too much stuff. I mean, it was really, really tough shoot. Um, um, and it just, it didn't really interest me that much. So I, I basically quit. <laughs> <laughs> I replaced myself. So, but anyways, but. And then from there, you started working on your own projects or? Well, what happened was, is the guy who worked with me um, was a producer, director of adult movies. His name was Sal Grasso. He's no longer with us. He went by the name Steve Scott. Right. I had met him uh, through a friend at Roger Corman's and uh, worked for him as an assistant on some adult shoots in San Fernando Valley that paid well, and um, but I got to learn more. I got to learn how to use the Nagra. I learned got to learn how to uh, load film magazines. I got to I really got to know more of the you know the film editing, negative cutting, post production. I mean everything back then was was shot on film and edited on film. Right. Yeah. So in, all the way down to answer print. So I got to learn the whole process a lot. For I mean it was I mean we must have done twenty five pictures, and so I got to really learn a lot. So 25 adult pictures. I did as an assistant. And then I went, I was head of production and camera a cinematographer for William Higgins for a couple of, about a year. And then, you know, um, started directing a lot. I did uh, about 40 or 50 movies uh, in a period of about a year and a half. It was a real, I mean, VHS are my three favorite letters, you know. <laughs> I mean, so it invented me is what it did. And I took all that cash and um, did my first horror movie in 1986 called Dream Maniac. And Dream Maniac was essentially a female Freddy Krueger. Um, and it was over the top. I had a lot of male nudity in it. And um, um, I had a lot of female nudity in it at the time. But when I started shooting it, a lot of the female, the you know, actors, actresses, she decided they didn't want to do it. So, but the dudes had no problem with it. So it ended up being a very gay movie because there was full frontal nudity and crazy stuff. I mean, I was, I really wanted to make the film commercial. And about four days before shooting, um, I was introduced to Charles Band, who had a company called Empire Pictures, which just happened, his main office happened to be just a few blocks from, um, where I lived at the time and I had been watching his films in Portland since, you know, the mid seventies. So I, I knew who he was and um, he was fascinated that I was out there making a movie on film, a horror movie. And he said, look, you know, let's just, um, well, why don't we be partners on it? I'll, you know, you spend your money to get it shot. I'll finish the post. I'll reimburse you. I'll give you a piece of the action and believe it or not at all. He released it through Vestron and um, got all my money back. Plus a nice, surprising profit and fee. And um, he liked the film, but it was interesting that his head of production a woman called me and said, well, we saw your cut. Um, are you gay? <laughs> and uh, I didn't have the heart to tell her that um, it, she shouldn't be asking that question. Right. But I was very much in the closet and said, absolutely not. What would make you think that? She goes, okay. <laughs> so um, I was dealing with... Um, you know, adult was always very open-minded. Um, mainstream B-movies was very much a straight cowboy right. business of car chase movies, horror movies, naked girls. It was very much a straight um, subgenre of the business. And I thought. Right. Okay, so um, I was very much in the closet and everything. But anyways, Charlie said, look, you know, maybe we'll just do uh, this one's fine. We did OK with it. Let's do another one. So I came up with a title called Creepazoids and 
um, we did. It was kind of an Aliens knockoff, and that one did very well for him. So he just said, let's just keep making them. If you can make them at this price, let's right. just keep making them. He needed a lot of movies, and it was back during the heyday of VHS. So I did a bunch of movies for him. And something I want to ask about, because it's it's kind of specific to the moment where I started discovering genre cinema. Like you said, you would see them at the movies. A lot of movies I saw that pulled me into this genre. I saw in USA up all night mm, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of your movies right. played on, on that they show. Sure did. Uh, was a lot of the output of that era of horror kind of geared for those platforms in VHS. Cause I remember reading once that there was a point where certain studios would create horror films just to get them on late night cable for eyeballs. Is that true? I think so. I think that, um, any content, I, mean, I remember VHS was leading the way though. I mean, right. we weren't expecting, uh, these movies to ever play on, even on cable television. I mean, this with VHS was a huge market, 30,000 video mm-hmm. stores. They would buy movies for $30 each. Pretty easy arithmetic there. Right. Um, so if you made the movies for the right price, had a really great box cover, you did well. And there was a lot of independent companies at the time, Empire, Canon, Atlantic, Vestron, um, Weintraub. I mean, there was about maybe maybe a half dozen to a dozen New Line Cinema um, that all uh, was making these high concept high concept movies. And um, but you know, I really I mean, there's but there's some that really were successful, like Nightmare on Elm Street, right? With a mint condition Johnny Depp and a cut off T shirt and those <laughs> shorts. I mean, he was so gorgeous in that movie. It's just like, who is he? Um, and, uh, so that's why I did my little, my little female Freddy Krueger knockoff. So with Dream Maniac. Well, it's interesting that you say too, that out of the gate, there was a homoeroticism to Dream Maniac, even if, uh, at the time you didn't necessarily want to acknowledge it. Well, it's interesting because I don't think there's a, uh, and this has been, you know, I've been getting some, you know, criticism over Sometimes you don't, I mean, if you're making a movie, sometimes not every single element is intentional. Of course. You know, it's, I mean, being gay is who I am. um, Mm. And I'm not saying that I go, "Mm, maybe I should make this one really gay just to, no. As a matter of fact, how about no? Right. Because, I mean, there was very homophobic business even today. Um, You know, I, you know, so, but, but if you, if the producers sort of turn you loose and you can sneak in certain elements that might be commercial to a knowing audience, right. then, you know, say, hey, guy's got a girlfriend, nothing gay about this movie, but, the, you, know, the, you know what I'm saying? It's right. that really, if, you, if you're really clever, you can sneak a lot of stuff in there. So, and that's what I did with, ultimately, with the Brotherhood series, Voodoo Academy, films like that. Well, that was something I wanted to talk to you about, because I think a hallmark, especially of a lot of your output uh, from the 90s forward, is you did include this element of homoeroticism that wasn't necessarily gay, though. And Mm -hmm. I've heard you talk about this in interviews before, Mm -hmm. and I find that really interesting uh, because I'm curious from your standpoint, what is the delineation between a homoerotic movie and a homosexual movie? Well, that's a good question. I think, um, well, here's, first of all, um, I make a living as a filmmaker. Right. Um, if I have an idea for a movie that I think is extremely commercial, mm-hmm. um, and let's say I went to uh, Charles Band and I said, look, I got this idea about this boy's Bible school where the guys run around in their underwear the whole time. 
and um, um, you know they uh, turn into zombies. He's going to go what? Huh? Who? <laughs> but if I went to him and I said, "Look, I've got this vehicle for your girlfriend, <laughs> and it's a amazing vehicle where she's the only woman in the movie, and I cast the movie with a lot of guys." Because the WB right now is the, one of the biggest networks for teenage girls. So let's make the first horror movie for girls. I can get that greenlit. Right. It's how you pitch it. Now, how I sneak all those images in that are gay appeal images, right. not necessarily homoerotic, but maybe homoerotic. I guess that's in the eye of the beholder. Right? Sure. So it depends on what you like. I remember being in line at, um, at Outfest in the 90s and people would... The line would be around the block because some movie that was barely kind of gay might have one two-second shot of a guy's penis. And everybody's like, oh, my God, this is so – and you see this line, and I go, really? You know, this isn't even much of a gay movie. It's just right. kind of the you – know, it's so – Again, I was just feeling that we it was an underserved market. Mm -hmm. And and so I thought maybe I could, you know, have movies that were that would have appeal to gay people, a, appeal to women, appeal to all. And also get them into mainstream retailers like Blockbuster and Hollywood Video. I kind of wanted it all. Right. And so but, um, you know, I'm not sure if I answered your question, but, um, you know, gay appeal is in the eye of the beholder. Some people might like it. Some people might enjoy it, um, but, you know, beautiful young men um, in my movies have, uh, I think that's, uh, can be homoerotic, I think. Sure. Uh, what I think is interesting, too, because it kind of goes back all the way to the top of the conversation where you said when you were discovering horror movies, you had that moment where you sort of realized that these things could represent something else. And you said... Well, maybe there's a queerness to it. Mm -hmm. Do you remember ever like kind of having a realization that maybe your interest in the genre was connected to that part of your identity? Or do you not think that it is? Just... I don't know if it is. Um, I, you know, um, look, I mean, my favorite filmmaker is John Waters. There's right. John Waters and then there's everybody else. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So and I remember him saying that him being gay was number 17 on his list, not number two. <laughs> right. And I go, that's cool. Yeah. You know, I get that. And I kind of feel the same way too. You know, I'm kind of a, you know, um, um, I, it, to me being gay is as natural as breathing. I've never had an issue with it. I've never come out of a closet. I don't think, I mean, I was, I mean, professionally, I, I had to come out of a closet, but personally with my friends, no, absolutely not. So I've never really had an issue with it with regard to family or religion or anything like that. It was always just so natural to me. So, but I also, you know, feel that when I'm asked to do a movie or I can get a movie going, if it's the, if it's a certain budget level, I feel that they turn me loose and they kind of go, Dave, do what you do. Just, you know, make sure the movie makes some money. Right. And so that's really, it's, it's really a much more pragmatic way of thinking. So it's it's natural to me to have those kind of images. But also, you know, I see it in action movies. You know, I saw it in the Jean-Claude Van Damme movies. I mean, some of his, he's showing his butt in most of his action movies. His he's bare ass. He's usually oiled up. Oiled yeah, up, yeah. very erotic. I mean, hot guys, hot action. So, I mean, it's like sometimes you watch these movies. And I mean, there was one, what is it, Bloodsport or something? He's in the ring with the bad guy and the bad guy looks at him. And Jean-Claude is in mint condition down to his little fitted 
And the guy goes, I don't know if I should kill you or fuck you. You know, it's just like, you know, it's so it's just like, you know, again, you see these images in so many of these movies that, you know. I think it's probably how they're presented, too, because uh, I frequently make the joke that um, straight men are often gayer than gay men. Uh, And I mean that in that there's always this like presentation that they have to do to one another. If you ever see a group of like young straight guys trying to like show each other up, they're they're doing it for each other. They're not doing it for Mm -hmm. anybody else. And I always think, I was like, why does no one see how kind of gay this is? Hey, I felt that way opening night on Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2 on Hollywood Boulevard when I saw that movie. Because I loved the first movie, and I went to the opening night, and I sat there in the theater, and I was looking at the audience going, what is this movie? Is anybody catching on to this? <laughs> I mean, because when you look at that, and then you see the documentary about Nightmare on Elm Street afterward, and no right. one had any idea except Mark Patton. No, and it's all a matter of perspective, too, because I think that people willfully ignore things if they don't want to see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the discussion about Nightmare on Elm Street that I always think is interesting is that people in the Midwest are watching that movie. They watch him go to a leather bar and they kind of just in the middle of the 80s mm-hmm. adjust their mind. They're like, oh, he's at a biker bar yeah. or whatever. And I'm like, or punk rockers. Yeah, They're, it's just eclectic Hollywood types. <laughs> So uh, you had mentioned how John Waters is a favorite filmmaker of yours, Mm -hmm. and we were talking about gay cinema. Mm -hmm. And there is a film in your oeuvre that you made, Leather Jacket Love Story, Mm -hmm. that is a gay movie Mm -hmm. that I know John Waters praised Mm -hmm. and he was a fan of. Mm -hmm. When you made that movie and you got that feedback from John Waters as someone who admired his work, what was that like? Well, it was incredible. I mean, um, that movie was made um, because it was time for me to make that film. I thought that hmm, I might have a career above and beyond the (laughs) B-movies. That changed. Um, And... um, but it was also pre-digital, pre-internet. So you had, you were shooting on film, direct a gay movie, tour the world. It got seen. But it was also a gay B-movie. I mean, if you look at that film, it's a B-movie. And, um, but it has great intentions. It's a, it's a very, you know, um, you know, genuine love story, I felt. Um, and, um, but I, you know, I did that film right after I did a film called Skeletons, which I did, um, um, I got hired just, it was like, I, I, it was shocking. I, you know, I worked for, back in my production assistant days, I worked for Ken Russell. Oh, wow. On Crimes of Passion. I was the craft service guy and I got to meet the producer writer of it, Barry Sandler. And we became really good friends. He had written Making Love, which I love that film. And, um, but, um, you know, flash forward 12 years later and I'm a director and Ken somehow there was something between he and the producers. He got let go from the project and they had a pay or play deal with actor Ron Silver for $300,000. It was a long time. It was, I had just directed a Kung Fu movie for this company with Maxwell Caulfield and Stacey Keach and Linda Blair. I directed a Linda Blair movie. So, Oh wow. <laughs> I know. No. Uh, wait, a Linda Blair Kung Fu movie? Uh, fuck yeah, honey. <laughs> <laughs> so queen, this whole queen don't mess around. And I threw Paul Bartell in it just for good measure. <laughs> I don't know how I haven't seen that one yet. Prey of the Jaguar. Yes. Uh, Maxwell Caulfield. What a great human being. Anyway, so I I had done that film and they liked it. And they said, well, we have we need a director to replace Ken Russell. And I said, the producers. Wait a fucking second. You guys fired Ken Russell. This was going to be your big movie. What the fuck happened? They go, they explain. Two weeks later, I'm directing Skeletons starring Ron Silver, Christopher Plummer, James Coburn, 
Carol Baker, Dennis Christopher, Paul Bartel, I mean, uh, pop star Jeremy Jordan. I mean, I, it was, I mean, I, I completely was like so over and over my head. We were shooting at the Warner Brothers backlot, the Disney backlot. They had given Ken 30 days to shoot it. They only, they cut the schedule down to 19 days for me. I was on crane shots and rain towers and SWAT teams and action scenes. And I was completely in over my head. So I had cast Paul Bartell, who I met years ago, who was a really good friend of mine. I miss him dearly. Um, I said, I kind of need you there. Um, I'm going to put you in the movie. Um, and, uh, but I'll make sure your character is in every scene somehow, or you'll work every day. So he sat next to my monitor with me and he gave me a lot of advice and kind of oversaw what I was doing uh, because I was in over my head, right. way in over my head. Well, it's got to be horrifying, too, because, you know, anyone who's involved in the process of making a movie knows it's a lot of work. And mm-hmm. to suddenly like be handed a project two weeks before you have to go mm-hmm. do it of that caliber, mm-hmm. you must have been ridden with anxiety. Oh, I was a complete total mess. I... um I mean, what am I going to say to Christopher Plummer as a director? What am I going to say to uh, James Coburn? And uh, and also the film was about gay intolerance. Dennis Christopher plays a, a, a young man who is, you know, knows computers. This is 1996. <laughs> so he and his boyfriend moved to this small town in Connecticut um, that's ethnically cleansed. And suddenly his boyfriend is dead. And he was wondering why. And the police blame Dennis Christopher. And he's thrown in jail. And his mother, Carol Baker, goes to uh, Ron Silver, who's a New York City journalist who just moves into town because he had a heart attack. And um, says, I think my son has been, you know... My son has been um, um, uh, blamed for this for the death of his boyfriend, and but there's no jury here that's going to not convict him because you know. So it's it unravels. So here I'm dealing with a very sensitive subject written by a guy named Joshua Michael Stern. I don't know if you know Josh. He's had some success since then. Really good writer. I had him on the set every day too, um, and um, um, the movie turned out pretty darn good. I mean, I delivered it on schedule. Um, uh, Ron Silver was a little bit of a handful, not because he was a jerk, and is that he had never played a good guy before. He always played the bad guy, so he was so worried about playing the protagonist. So, uh, but Christopher Plummer became a dear friend and a lovely human being. I mean, the sweetest guy you'll ever meet. I mean, I just my experience directing him. Oh, he's just a dream. And of course, James Coburn, you know, it's a so killer cast. It's a yeah. killer cast. And um, um, but uh, but once I had done that film, I felt like, OK, Leather Jacket Love Story is next. So and it, it, that one worked out really, really well. Um, then I joined the DGA. I directed a, a movie called The Journey Absolution um, with Richard Grieco and Mario Lopez and uh, Jamie Presley. And I thought, OK, I'm in the DGA, all this stuff. And then Crickets. So crickets for a year. I could not get rested. So I went back to working for Charles Band. So it's interesting that you had brought up skeletons when I asked about Leather Jacket Love Story, because I read in another interview that you named those two movies as the two movies of yours that you believe to be the most creatively successful. Yes. And uh, of course, we know the difference. The commercially successful movie Mm -hmm. is a movie that like makes a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And what makes a movie creatively successful to you? Well, I mean, it's, look, it's all about the script. I'm not a writer by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm a good idea guy. I like working with writers. I like talking through the script. Um, I like visualizing it, but it's all in the material. Mm -hmm. And um, 
So when I read it and then when I watch it, if my if my vision, my intentions, how I wanted to make the movie actually play on screen, great. That doesn't always happen. So, you you know, it doesn't happen for me a lot, quite a bit. Sometimes I might have really, really high expectations and, you know, then I get stuck with a really tight shooting schedule and I'm making compromise. The old saying is, is, you know, in the morning you're making Gone with the Wind and in the afternoon you're making Starsky and Hutch, you know, <laughs> because you got to make your day, you know. And I always, and this is, you know, why I'll never be rich, um, I always put myself into situations where, you know, the schedules are way too short. I love a good challenge, you know, um, but sometimes I end up on, you know, I, you know, sometimes I end up on movies where it's the budget's so tight and the script and the budget don't compare the script is way too ambitious and and you notoriously can turn a movie around pretty fast pretty fast i mean i i keep working so right. as long as they hire me i know i know i do i'm doing something right right and i directed 11 tv movies last year 11 11 um everything from female driven thrillers to christmas movies i had three christmas premieres on the ion network this past year um, I was the voice of a newscaster in one of them. <laughs> Were you? I was. That's great. <laughs> no, I mean, those are the ones. I mean, if you do, if you direct 11 movies in one year, TV movies, and you're meeting deadlines and air dates, you rarely are involved in post-production. I mean, some of these movies I didn't see for the, I mean, I directed them and I never saw a cut. I mean, I would, the first time I'd see them was when they were on TV. On TV. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but, um, but yeah, so I guess I'm doing something right because I, I, I made it. But there's, is there a queer sensibility to this? Is there a camp sensibility? Is there, you know, is there a, a you know, a mischievous sensibility? I, you know, sometimes I'll, you know, you know, do some strange casting choices. Sometimes I'll flip genders. Sometimes, uh, you know, I have a real, working in the genre, sometimes you get stuck on movies that can be mean-spirited or really uh, violent, violent against women right. or really, and I just have a really big problem with that. I always fight to make sure that, you know, you know, there's a scene in several movies where the woman is bruised. I said, I'm sorry, she, the, the guy is not going to strike the woman in this movie. I don't right. care if it's a female driven thriller or not. You know, the, the women, the women are going to fight and they're going to, you know, get through this situation. I just have a really and, I, and there's a certain level of cruelty in some of these genre mm -hmm. pictures that I just find completely offensive. And I try to stay away from that. You know, I mean, I had an argument once. With a female producer on a woman's prison movie in the 90s, and she was insisting on endless rape scenes. I said, I'm not putting any rape scenes in this movie. And it's tough to have an argument with a female producer over female rape. So it's just like it's the, it's the craziest business. So but I fight against that kind of stuff. I think it's cheap. Right. And um, and I find a lot of films that I've seen extremely um, homophobic. Right. Where I, you know, even just one comment, I go, this is offensive to me. If this is the kind of movie you guys want to make, then count me out. There's plenty of other directors available, and I know them all. So it just, I, I really do have to, I'm, I'm, I'm a, <laughs> as I say, I'm an old hooker. I like to, you know, work the tracks and <laughs> any movie comes along. If the money is halfway decent, I raise my hand. But, but, in, but I also, when I sit down with them, I, we, we can't, we can't, we got to aim a little higher, I think, in some of this stuff in terms of just its homophobia or violence against women. Well, I think it's important too, that, 
and I think this is something you do very well with your work is to kind of bring the spirit of fun back to genre material, Mm -hmm. because we talk about people like Charlie Band or Mm -hmm. Roger Corman, who when you watch those movies, they're made in a spirit of fun. Mm -hmm. And there is this strange kind of moment in time where Mm -hmm. movies got very mean in the genre. Really mean. And uh, we need people like you to like remind us these should be our fun pictures. These should be the movies that we go and enjoy. There can be spookiness and it can be scary, Mm -hmm. but why does it have to be mean? Yeah, why does it have to be mean-spirited? I mean, I understand violence. I've had a lot of violent scenes in movies and blood and gore and all that. I mean, I've done that. Right. But when when there's a real mean-spirited attitude towards it, vision Mm -hmm. of it, it, it turns me off. Now, I'm in the minority. Those films do very well. Right. Um, I ultimately am making the movies for me. Right. You know, and the the chips lie, lie where they may. They just, however they fall, it's a, I'm just doing the best I can within my own vision of the movie. I take direction very well from producers. I understand it, but I have a point of view. Right. They're paying me for my opinion, so my opinion should not mean nothing. You know what I'm saying? So when I'm doing a tw- directing a 22-page day or something, every decision you make when you're shooting two pages an hour, um, you know, will affect, you know, will affect their budget, where I point the camera, how the scene is played, how the coverage is played, how the performance is played, you know, all of that. So my opinion means some, something. So when I read a script and I see stuff that's a glaring problem, I bring it up. And if, the, if I lose the argument, the producer then initials that page right by that issue. And I will shoot it. You know, but I I do have an opinion and I'm I'm not difficult. I mean, it, I'm usually trying to, you know, get these producers in, in most cases and, and networks, you know, give them other options that they might not have seen, you know, um, or, or opportunities or, you know, it's like, why are we setting this whole movie, this whole scene in a concrete room? Why don't we put it in this church we have available to us that's demolished to make it interesting? You know what I'm saying? Just kind of give them because they don't know, you know, they, they know it's, I, cause see, I don't work in low budget. I work in micro budget. So it's, 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 it's one step lower. So I just want to give them as big a movie as I can for the, for the price. I mean, I do want to make these films successful. I don't want everybody to win. You know, right. it's not like I'm battling any of these producers. It's just that it's a collaboration. Well, and certainly people who are difficult don't make over 130 movies. Now, looking at your resume with this, voluminous list of credits to your name and growing you, as we were talking before we started recording, you're getting ready to head off and make two more movies relatively in quick succession. Mm-hmm. Uh, over the course of that career, are there like standout moments of, of, of your career that like you can pinpoint with, with some of those, because how hard is it to keep track of over a hundred? Well, you know, films? I was, you know, I was there, um, in, what must've been 2000. Um, I was making a, a movie called the brotherhood for a company called Regent entertainment who had just, um, they had just produced, uh, uh, an amazing movie called gods and monsters. So they were very much in, they were gotten nominated for an Oscar and everything. And, you know, one of the um, partners in the company said, maybe we should have a little B movie division. And there were some rumblings about that, but ultimately I did a film called the brotherhood for them, which was about, you know, fraternity of vampires, homoerotic (laughs) PG 13. um, And it did really well for them. So I ended up doing about 22 movies for them. 
Um, and they, around that time, decided to launch Here TV, which was the first uh, gay, linear, and transactional uh, and SVOD gay channel in the business uh, in, in all of the United States. And uh, so they needed a lot of content. So I did quite a few of those films. And I just remember, you know, the films would have a little theatrical and they would play on on um, on Here TV. And I remember those 22 movies, just a really great experience working with um, Paul uh, Kalishman and Steve Jarko, mainly Steve Jarko, because he was my point guy there pretty much. And um, just having, you know, I would go in and we would, I would pitch an idea to him and he'd say, let's get the script going. And it was all about the script to him and we would get the script developed and I'd go make the movie. And I was working in the micro budget um, and for him as well, because, mm-hmm. you know, all these companies, Empire, uh, Regent, Here TV, um, uh, Hybrid, almost every one of these companies, I don't do the flagship movies. I don't do the low budget movies. I always do the micro budget movies. And it's an area that, uh, you know, I, I'm perfectly happy to work in. So I'm not, it's never, you know, I, I, when I moved to LA, I didn't really want to make the great American movie. I mean, there's plenty of guys out there that can do that. And I was here to be a working director, be the gay Roger Corman, um, that kind of thing, the gay Russ Meyer, you know, I wanted to be that kind of a filmmaker who can work um, on modestly budgeted um, movies and, you know, deliver the goods and continue working and make doing this as a living. Because as you know, there's a lot of really, really talented people out there who are not working. And I said, you know, I just, I've got to keep working. So I'm a workaholic. I come from a working class family. My father was a gravel plant form and I come from a whole different my work ethic is a little different so um, but I like to work and I like to make movies and over the years I've discovered a lot of young actors in these movies that have gone on to tremendous success um, the Corey Monteith's the Sean Ferris's and stuff all started with me um, and um, but being a working director now being you know 56 years old your taste changes. Right. You know, I mean, I directed my first movie that I'll admit to at 24. Um, <laughs> and um, at 24 years old. And you were, my head was in a completely different space. And that was the right. 80s. Everything was, let's go. It's, it's crazy over the top. And now it's, I'm a little more reserved. I've turned into a little old lady, I think, pretty much. Um, and um, I just have a different, you know, point of view and different. You know, my tastes are completely different. And speaking of turning into a little old lady, uh, I don't know if if these women are actually little old ladies, but you have used a number of aliases throughout the years when releasing <laughs> films. Right. Uh, some have been ladies, some have been other gentlemen. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you are directing a movie, mm-hmm. w- at what point do you choose to direct it under a different name? Well, it's not really. I mean, at the time I was doing so many movies that it got to the point where me and a couple of my contemporaries uh, were changing our names because of the volume. So right. some of the buyers would walk into a suite at the American Film Market. Go, oh, you've got, you know, 14 Dave Dakota movies. How about, you know, how about a little less Dave Dakota and a little more something else? Right. So we would mix up the title and it, it, nobody knew. Oh, there's some Mary Jackson. There's uh, Ellen Cabot. There's, and so what I thought I'd do is I directed a lot of late night cable erotica right. in the early to mid '90s, and uh, so I would go by different names on that. I also joined the Directors Guild of America uh, for a while, and um, had to use different names because I was working non-union, and then I left the guild. 
Um, I became a Canadian, um, so I work a lot in Canada. Right. Um, all over Canada, sci-fi channel movies, Lifetime and that. Um, so I just would just, it just got to be the point where my name was on everything. Not everything, was on too much. Right. Um, and, uh, but was on everything for some of these companies. Unless I said, let's just mix it up. It was, it was strictly uh, a business decision. It had nothing to do with, uh, you know, that I didn't or, 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 I mean, there's a lot of films out there that, you know, with the IMDb, it's tough to have any secrets anymore. But for the most part, there's a, um, you know, there's a number of films that they list that I direct with the IMDb but that I had nothing to do with. So I don't know how this information gets out. But, um, but no, it's, it's uh, the pseudonyms are just, you know, at, I don't really do that much anymore. Right. I mean, I don't do many of the pseudonyms anymore um, because it's not an American film market type of market anymore. Right. It's, it's more of a television market. No, and it's so interesting because I was looking before the show and I realized that a movie of yours that is very near and dear to my heart that I've asked you about probably in person uh, in the past was actually when you directed under the Ellen Cabot pseudonym and it's a movie called The Girl I Want. Oh yeah. Uh, which is a movie I saw on USA Up mm-hmm. All Night and uh, it's one of my favorite movies that Thank you. you did. Um, Thank any, you. Any plans to, to get that back out in the world? Well it's interesting that that movie was written by a man named Ken Hall who I had met he was in a makeup effects guy and I met him through John Beekler's shop and my friend Miriam Pricell really talented writer. He wrote um, Nightmare Sisters. He wrote Dr. Alien. And I just loved his scripts. And I had him write that one for me. And um, my partner on it, the financier, um, didn't even want to put it on video. He went, it went right to USA Up All Night because it was really clean. It was one of those clean ones that didn't have a lot of nudity in it. Because as you know, USA Up All Night had to cut the nudity out. Right. You know, so... Um, because it was broadcast. Um, USA Network was a small channel at the time um, and a small cable channel. And um, so, and then he sold, my partner sold his library to another. I'm working on locating the negative. I think I know where it is now. And I'm trying to make arrangements to get that film released as um, on Blu-ray or something because it was shot on film. And, uh, you know, actually, it was Quentin Tarantino before he was Quentin Tarantino saw it and really was complimentary about it as well. That one really works. Ken's movies that he writes, I mean, because I, you know, I don't even change a word of his scripts. They're just flawless to me. I mean, those scripts are page turners. He really just it's very delicious and funny. And it he's one of the funniest guys. So I just, you know, I wish he'd write more scripts is what I would wish he did. But um, but eventually that film will come out. I had a crazy cast, too. We had Elizabeth Caton and Linnea Quigley, Karen Russell, Kit Natividad, Lyle Wagoner. That's right. Yeah, it was a crazy, uh, it was a crazy cast. I mean, I probably somewhere uh, have it taped off of Up All Night. That like, A lot of people do. That's that. like the only place it was released, essentially, in the United States. Never even on VHS. It's very weird. It was just... They paid a lot for it, and there was no interest in. But I don't know what ultimately. I mean, I, it was it was a while ago, but um, yeah. But eventually, this movie will come out on Blu-ray. So no, it's interesting because, and I think a lot of our listeners are interested in in kind of the nitty gritty of the industry. Uh, and you talk about how you know you're trying to locate the negative, mm-hmm. and when you're creating work uh, at the volume that you did, mm-hmm. especially then. How how typical is it that movies just kind of like the rights get lost in the world? 
Boy, that's a really long question. <laughs> I mean, that's a really good question with a really long answer, Michael. But what happened was, uh, what happened and has always happened is there was 12 wet labs in the L.A. area. There was, um, and now there's one. Mm. Um, those labs usually vaulted those negatives. Um, those labs went out of business. The films were orphaned. Rights were, um, a, a, you know, licensed to companies that went out of business and were banked by banks that went out of business. And a lot of these things are just, I mean, they're orphaned. I, these movies, you don't know where the original elements are. They just kind of can't keep track. Um, I got a call from a very, very, very big movie producer who just sold his library and they're looking for most of his negatives. And so um, it's because, it, it, you know, the labs changed, the, you know, the elements changed. And, you know, we went from film to digital. And between that, you went from one inch to digi beta to two inch to all these different formats. And you kept, you know, with interpositives and stuff. I tell you, um, vault inventory is, is tough. And a lot of times the movies were retitled. A lot of times you're missing the sound of a negative from a negative because the elements are all split up. <clears throat> That's a completely different podcast, Michael. Well, you and I talking about uh, rescuing movies that we, you know, of, that were lost. Uh, well, so. even in a small way, I just think it's important for people to know because I see comments on the internet all the time of be like, "How can a filmmaker not know what happened to their movie?" and I, you know, I try and explain it as best I can, mm -hmm. uh, but. Once we're done with it, it's sort of sometimes out of our hands, depending who produced it, who processed it, who owns when, it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, it, uh, you're right. I told. I think I, a couple episodes ago, uh, when Jeff Nelson of Scream Factory was on, I had made the mention that there are movies I've written that I don't own copies of, and that's right. just you know yeah. the way of the world now. It is the way of the world, and also it's um, the new formats, the new technologies are requiring going back to the original negative. If we right. want 4K and things like that, um, and um, um, delivery QC specs are extremely high now. Luckily, I've been able to buy most of my old library back from my original partners, and I've right. got most of my negatives back now. The girl I want is one that I'm still trying to find. Um, I, I know where it is. I just have to do some fancy footwork to be able to make it move. Um, but, um, um, but yeah, no, it's sometimes you just kind of throw your hands in the air and go, oh, I did a really great movie for Showtime 20 years ago. What the heck happened to it? And then suddenly it's on Amazon Prime. You go, I guess somebody sold it to, you know, you just sort of stumble on it, you right. know. Now, speaking of new technology, we discussed how a lot of your career was really carried on the back of the VHS era mm -hmm. and then the late night cable. And mm -hmm. one of the things that I think is really remarkable about you is you're adaptable and you have always been open to evolution and change. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we talked when you uh, were working with here and they're kind of like launch into the mm -hmm. world of VOD. You have embraced the, the digital platform mm -hmm. and the world of VOD. And mm -hmm. with your own company, Rapid, Rapid Heart, mm -hmm. you even have a, a digital platform of your own that hosts your movies. Right. Um, has the, the move to digital been essential to the survival of filmmakers uh, of the micro and low budget medium? Well, yes. Now, remember back in the day, 80s and 90s, uh, the movie industry was a hermetically sealed mm -hmm. business. You had to really, you know, pole vault over that wall to get into the business. It was very tough. How I did it was 
raise the money and create my own job. Right. You know, I didn't go in with an application and say, I'd like to direct a movie for you. Um, I had to create my own work. And that's how it's always really ultimately been. Right. Um, because um, of digital technology, that's really democratized filmmaking. The, the um, invention of the, the digital camera, 24P camera, and um, and new editing software. You don't have to be in Hollywood to make a movie. Hollywood's a state of mind. You could make it in Muskegon, Michigan and get it released. And now with the internet, especially broadband going online about 2000, the distribution of movies has now been democratized. Um, it's not that it's DVDs over or Blu-rays over. I mean, it just, there's more platforms to see the movies, which kind of spreads the income essentially. So Essentially, we went from dollar analog dollars to digital dimes to ad revenue pennies. Um, and um, right now, um, I mean, could you could you even think that, you know, 25 years ago that um, the, um, you know, the entire entertainment budget, you know, per month could be eight dollars by subscribing to Netflix, all you can eat, 10,000 TV shows, 30,000 movies. Wild. It's amazing. Um, So, you know, because the entertainment budget was much higher for people back, they'd go and rent a movie for two or three dollars. And, you know, there was, it was a different, it's a completely different business. And many of those companies are no, no longer with us that they could not survive. The majors will always be with us because they have libraries and they have deep pockets and they have big, Temple blockbusters and they'll make it work. And, um, but the independence, it's now democratized. Same, same amount of eyeballs out there, but, um, more to look at and, um, a lot of it free. So with, between piracy, between, um, you know, it, it's just a different, it's very tough to do a business plan right. on, on a business like this. So I, you know, I've all the, well, since I launched Rapid Heart in 99, we went from film to, to, to digital to, I mean, we've, it, it's, we've been doing this almost 20 years. So uh, I'm just my own little label, not mentioning working for other companies, but um, now I'm on every platform, iTunes, Vudu, uh, Amazon, all that. And I had really great run over on Netflix for a while until they decided to make their own movies and right. um, and had some stuff on sci-fi. Um, but the platforms are, and I still, I still squeeze dollars out of DVD and Blu-ray, believe it or not. Um, so it's now there's, it used to be four revenue sources. Now there's... Um, a hundred revenue streams. So it's, it's just different and you got to, you know, stay ahead of that stuff and also police your intellectual property, you know, get on that YouTube and make sure your movie that you made, that you spent your life making isn't on YouTube and it's got a million views that you, it's, you know, as you really, you know, so I really stay, try, try to stay ahead of all that and police the piracy issues, which is a, a much bigger issue, I think, than, people think and um and then then also trying to create a promotion and marketing to let people know out there that your movie exists i mean just putting it on itunes and expecting the dollar you have to really point traffic at that title on itunes so it's really tough it's i've never worked harder for less money in my life that's all I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, shifting gears a bit, speaking of the hurdles of micro budget filmmaking and uh, pole vaulting into the world of big Hollywood, 
You recently uh, spent time on the set of a major Hollywood film that's about a very micro-budget movie, or a micro-budget filmmaker, I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were in, or worked, you filmed a scene on The Disaster Artist, right? Right. Well, now I can talk about it. Okay. I, I was signed an NDA, and I think this is, might be the first time I've talked about this. Um, yeah, very quickly. Um, I had... Uh, Dropped out of the DGA in 1999 um, and um, went to go work for Charlie. He gave me an office at his um, company and said, you know, welcome back and let's make some B movies. And so he said, I need another Puppet Master film. And I directed a number of them of those films, one of which did really well for him and Paramount back in the good old Paramount days called Puppet Master 3. And um uh, so he said, hey, you know, come. You know, I said, OK, so I'll do retro Puppet Master for him. It's going to movie horror movie set in 1897 in Paris. We're going to shoot it in Bucharest where I made about six or seven movies already. So I said, I'm game. I need work. Let's go. <laughs> so we needed a young Toulon and the young Toulon had to pull off um, a, a French accent. So we were thinking about casting out of France or maybe out of London or someplace just to see if we can get a European to. No, we're just we get, we gotta go because I was got I had to be on a plane in a week, so um, we had a bunch of gun guys come in and they needed to be tall and kind of lanky like Guy Rolf was, right. but a younger version like a twenty year old version of it. And a number of kids came in, but a lot of them couldn't pull off the French accent. But this one kid came in named Greg Sestero, and he had a, he had not done anything except I think he had one non speaking part on that. Oh, what was that one movie with Rob? The Cancer Clown one? The um, Oh, Patch Adams. Patch Adams. Yeah. He had a scene in Patch Adams where he was at a funeral and he tried to cry or something like that. And, but otherwise, he had never done anything. He had just come in from San Francisco with a with his roommate and because um, he lived in San Francisco. Anyway, so um, I said, could you do a French accent? I didn't think he could, but then he came back and he did an incredible French accent. I said, well, how are you so good at that? He says, my, my mother's French and we only speak in French together. So this is a blessing in disguise. I can't believe it. So we cast him. I had to uh, Bucharest to start prepping. And this is a really big, I mean, horse and buggies and I mean, everything, period, everything. It was very, very tough. Anyways, he arrives and he puts on his little Toulon thing and everything. I said, this kid was, I mean, it just was amazing, really good. We came, became good friends on that movie. And uh, right when we came back, back we were there for oh no we were we were we shot for two weeks and we, we were on the way to the airport and the producer came up to us and said um um mr david mr david nato warplanes have just um uh bombed the former yugoslavia all airports in the region are closed for uh, the weekend now Yugoslavia was right down the street from Romania. So it was like from here to Vegas, right? So so Greg and I just, we ended up just going to the Transylvania Alps for the weekend and just kind of hung out up there and watched the, the, the war live on CNN. As you do. Yes, you do. <laughs> and um, and uh, it was good to know each other. He was a sweetheart of a kid, just a really great kid. But, you know, it seemed like he had a lot going on. He, he was smart, very entrepreneurial. Anyways, so the, the airport opens up. We liberate... We uh, liberate um, 
the former Yugoslavia, mm-hmm. and um, or NATO does. Right. Bill Clinton called the shots. Right. Um, I just and, actually uh, thought you and Greg Sestero <laughs> no, personally no, liberated the Yugoslavia. And we just drove over there and said, honey, <laughs> listen, bitches. <laughs> um, That's but, Dakota uh, diplomacy. Right exactly. <laughs> now listen, <laughs> you calm down over here. Um, so anyway, we, had, we had to get back there, and I said, okay, well, let's cut your demo reel, because he's the lead in the movie. So we cut his demo reel, and it's cut on VHS, remember VHS? And I have one of the full moon assistants drop it off at his apartment. And his roommate, who I had not met, who I have still never met, um, named Tommy, gets this VHS delivered and goes, what the hell is this? And he puts it into the puts it into the VHS and watches Greg's demo. And Tommy's like going, this is what Greg tells me. Tommy's saying, well, geez, I mean, you come to Hollywood, you get a starring role in a movie, you're flown to Romania, and you come back, and then the director cuts your demo reel, and wow, that's that's, that's great. I, I didn't know Hollywood was like that. Well, Tommy then had a tough time just getting an audition. He's right. a very unique individual, from what I understand. <laughs> um, and uh, so he ends up doing, um, so he starts writing his own script, saying, you know, Tommy's a really smart guy. You know, really smart. No matter what kind of persona, he's the guy knows what he's doing. He's so far ahead of all of us, that guy. Anyways, certainly in my genre. Um, And uh, so he writes the script and says to Greg, you know, you're going to produce it and co-star in it with me. And they they get it together. And so I'm hanging out with Greg. Greg does a couple more movies for me for here TV. He does Alien Presence. He's in Pit in the Pendulum. You know, Greg's going to... And he goes, yeah, you, you, we need a movie crew. Do you know any crew? I said, no, I know crews in L.A. So I got him a crew, and um, Tommy was shooting film and video at the same time, and it was a crazy shoot, and they fired the crew. And then uh, I kept hearing all these horror stories. Greg kept calling. Could we need a script supervisor. I tried to help as much as I could because, you know, Greg was my boy. He's a sweetheart. So I said, okay, anything to, I can do to help you out. They make the movie. Keep in touch with Greg. Greg says, well, we're finished the movie. We're going to start. We're going to edit it. And Tommy's going to screen it. They screened it, I think, at the Sunset Five over West Hollywood, I think. And Tommy booked the theater himself, apparently. And they screened it. And it was about half full. And people were laughing at it. And suddenly Greg's like, oh, my God, I made the worst movie ever made. Tommy goes, let's screen it in Pasadena, a completely different crowd. And he books it in Pasadena one night or midnight or whatever. And half the people that were laughing at it in West Hollywood are there at Pasadena to see it again. And Tommy's like, I think we're onto something. You know, flash forward years later, little Greggy is now being flown all over the world, sell out 4,000 seats in London for The Room, this movie The Room, which I still have never seen. It's and a unique motion picture. That's what I hear. Yeah. And I, so he says, okay, we're going to do this. We book it and this. And suddenly Greg's, you know, that's, that's a, I said, Greg, how many, you know, every city goes, David, we're going to every city. But this thing's booking and we're selling out and we're doing autographs and great. And so Greg says, and I'm writing a book about my experience. I said, okay, that sounds cool. So we keep in touch. And next thing you know, Greg has announced that Simon & Schuster has bought his book, is going to publish his book and and everything, and I can't believe it. He mentions me, but at the time, I went under the name Joseph Tennant was one of my pseudonyms because I was in the DGA at that time, so I was scabbing. So um, so Greg tried to be real discreet with it because he didn't want to throw me under the bus. Anyways, I mentioned in it briefly in the book. I, I only read that section. I didn't read the book. I said, I didn't ever see the room. I said, Greg, I'm not going to see this fucking movie until I see it with you at midnight because right. I'm not going to p- put myself through this thing. 
flash forward, um, James Franco buys the rights to the book for a movie, hires these top Hollywood screenwriters, writes the screenplay. Screenplay goes out watermarked all the big players, agents, and managers to package. Right. I get a call from a manager friend of mine says, David, you're not going to believe this. But um, it, was a, it was my manager, Mara Santino at Luba Rockland, she called. And her assistant, Mike, had said he was a big fan of the room. And he says, you know, you're in the script. You are in the script. And I said, really? I said, oh, I know. I was in the book. I but they said, no, you, it's you and you have dialogue. Wouldn't it be hilarious if we pitched you to play yourself? <laughs> so I thought, well, I'm not an actor. Um, I think your role in the Puppet Master movie is, what was it? What? Weren't you a, 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 a... No, that was... Oh, was I? Oh, no, no. I don't think I've ever... I, well, I was in Billy Butler's movie. Oh, that's right. I, 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 was, I, I played myself. Like, yeah, but that was just like one line. I was like, it was like a comedy. Right. It's like in Charles Nelson Riley of horror, you know? <laughs> um, and so um, and so they pitched me. Casting loves the idea. They run it past Franco. He loves the idea. Next thing you know, NDA get sent contract and sent they negotiate my manager negotiates not david dakota as director but david dakota as himself there's a negotiation at scale i thought this was going to be one of james frango's little hundred thousand dollar you know quickies that he was doing you know these little movies there's i thought that's what it was going to be no it's a new line cinema i'm reading all these documents okay costumer calls get fittings and where i'm a month away from shooting i'm being hired as a local fly down to l.a I said, and, and during this time, Zach Galifianakis signs on, Sharon Stone signs on, Jane Fonda signs on, um, all of these stars sign on. I go, there's a, by the time we get to, you know, shoot, Will Ferrell's going to want to play that part because everybody wants to be in this movie, all these comedians, because it's this movie is a big, I mean, Alec Baldwin, all these people really like the movie. They think it's hilarious, you know. I still have not seen it at this point. I still have not. But so I end up, I get to, I said, I, I go, let me talk. To, give me this. I call production. I said, give me the second AD cell number. I got to see if this is for real. And I call the second AD and I said, do I have a call time tomorrow? Said, of course you have a call time. I said, give me a rough idea of where you're shooting and what time. Because I got to prepare myself for this. I'm not used to being on camera. They said, uh, it'll be in Pasadena and no earlier than 2 p.m. I said, perfect. I'll wait for the call sheet. I get the call sheet in my email that night. Call sheet, number one, James Franco, uh, David Franco. Number two, James Franco. Number three, Sharon Stone. Number four, Seth Rogen. Number five, Zach Galifianakis. Number six, David Dakota. Good company to be in. Oh, yeah. Well, I was I was I wasn't thinking of it that way. I was mortified saying, oh, I'm going to fuck this up. So so I get to the set and it's this huge production. It's like trailers and uh, it's condor cranes and back. They turn this whole estate in Pasadena into Romania. But one of the offices they're shooting the scene with Iris Burton played by Sharon Stone. So I get in there and I'm a little nervous. I see Greg and. We're shooting the scene where I'm, you know, so it's David Franco. They're shooting in the other room. I'm in the video village. 
and I hear you action, you know, rolling action, and then it's and then Sharon Stone walks in. Oh, hi, Greg. Here's your script for uh, for Retro Puppet Master, uh, and here's your tickets to Bucharest. I got two words of advice to you: never fuck your leading lady, especially if she has highlights, and also do not second guess your director in front of your crew. Enjoy Bucharest. This is your first movie. You know, go break a leg. I'm just like hearing Sharon Stone say Retro Puppet Master, and that was fucking <laughs> surreal. So, anyways. I go, I goes, Greg, got to show me the the set for the Romanian set. So we went all the way back. They built the set. They had Airy BL3 cameras, Cossack hats, crew, snow, everything. And um, I had three lines. It's action. No, it's, it's, yeah, it's action. Cut. Please check the gate. Gre- Greg, you were terrific. That was the line. I go up and I go, okay, that's cool. Probably all things you said. Yeah, yeah. but I'm still really nervous. Right. And so, so we're getting ready, and they stage it, and they light it up, and I'm meeting everybody, and I'm really nervous. They have everything's replica, all the costumes, and everything's all replica. And I'm really nervous, and um, I go up to Franco and I say, "Look, you know, I had not even met him yet." And I said, "Hey, you know, I'm playing the myself, the director. Oh, you're the real dude." I said, "Yeah, I'm the real dude." Yeah, I go. So how do I mean, you know when they, I when I ask, you know? check the gate shouldn't the camera assistant then say gate is good and then i said greg you did a great job shouldn't i wait for that and he goes okay gate cut front huh what he goes, no, no no don't say any of that stuff just direct the puppets dude direct the puppets this is james franco really sweet guy by the way um and um so they yell action franco yells action i go through this the campiest thing i just i'm so awful i'm so i'm overplaying it i'm big i got this stuff's never gonna last because as you know michael the first act before you get to the meat of the story producers always like to contract that and get it down because you want to get to that short first act to get to the right okay so you really don't have 30 minutes you have 11 minutes to get to that second act And so I said, this is never going to survive. And I go, I said, I, I'm, I'm staggered. I'm dying for my, it's like dying for a glass of Chardonnay. So I, I, I said, Greg, let's get, let's get out of here. So we're getting ready to leave after we shoot the scene. And Franco and his AD come up and say, let's do, you want to do another day, dude? I said, sure. And so I came up with the scene. I said, look, I need, to, it's the casting scene. I said, I'm the one who asked him if he has a French accent. I'm blah, blah, blah. So I get, it was three days later, I get to the LA Center Studios and uh, my my dressing room is right next to Brian Cranston and Jim Parsons. So I got to talk to Jim Parsons about Normal Heart and how much I love that film and how incredible he is and Brian Cranston was like the sweetest guy in the world. Get ready to do my scenes where we're doing the casting of the movie, right? Right. And so I, I said, well, why don't we have the real Greg Sestero play the casting director? So Greg's in the scene with me and Franco says, what do you want to do? And we came up with a thing. And I told him exactly how the audition went and everything. And we just went with my ideas and and we shot all this stuff. I was a little more confident then. I still knew I was so awful in the movie. But when it came out and also all this ad-libbing, I go, this movie's going to come in too long. Anyways. All my scenes, thank God, were cut out. I was hoping they'd be in the extra added value on the Blu-ray. I don't think they are. But I got a text from Greg yesterday. He is just coming back. He just came back from Canada uh, from another screening of his new movie, Best Friends, but uh, with Tommy. And um, he said there might be a couple of shots or something. Of that. I, I just, yeah. But anyway, that was my experience with The Disaster Artist. And I still haven't seen The Room. And I still haven't seen The Disaster Artist. I want to watch The Room at Midnight with Greg at a theater and then I'll watch The Disaster Artist. But that's a, a long-winded answer to your question. Well, Sorry. I mean, I think that's a, a story that listeners are going to love, though. And I think that was really, 
kind of remarkable experience, whether it ended up in the film or not, because you got to see a whole other... Well, it certainly was a horror story, which goes with uh, the text of your... Uh, <laughs> with the, uh, the design of your uh, podcast here, so it was pretty horrific. Well, speaking of horror stories and bringing it back to the core of the film, uh, before we head off in, into the night, I... Uh, have to ask, you know, we've talked about your prolific career. You've made all of these movies. You've touched upon, you've made a Bigfoot movie. You've made witches and warlocks and mm-hmm. all sorts of mm-hmm. creatures and aliens and monsters. Everything. Is there a kind of movie or uh, a content of a, of a film that you have not yet got to do that you would like to do? A musical. You'd love to do a musical. Of course. Give me a break. I mean, you? Of course. <laughs> I mean, honey, it's, we're wired to love musicals. Am I being am I being uh, stereotypical? No, I'd love to do a musical. I'd love to do a dance number. I'd love to direct Faye Dunaway in anything um, just because it's Faye Dunaway. Of course. Um, I'd love to direct a horror hag movie. Um, uh, there's a I'd love to. Uh, but then again, you know, when I'm getting up at five in the morning and having to drive you know, it's just some cockamamie location or being or having to fly to, you know, crazy countries to make some of the and I've been all over the planet making kung fu movies and horror movies. Sometimes you just want to go direct a gothic soap opera like Dark Shadows and same parking space every day, air conditioned studio, 70 pages for the day, same cast, all pre-lit sets. And you go to the booth and you block it all out. And sometimes you just want to, you know, after as many movies as I've made, sometimes you just want to give yourself a break and just enjoy something like that. Because I missed, I miss the Gothic soap operas. You know, I miss that. We don't really have one on the air these days. No, I mean, you know, dark shadows is, I mean, I mean, when we were kids, we ran home from school to see dark shadows. So as I get older, I want it to be a little more where the environment to be a little bit more amenable to, you know, right. Just an old guy like me. So, yeah, because I feel sometimes some of these shoots, you know, they can be really, really tough. Well, with that in mind, what are you working on next? I have I'm doing another female driven thriller. Um, and uh, I just wrapped one a week ago with Vivica A. Fox. She's my producing partner. We've done about 10 movies together. And uh, Vivica will be in this one as well coming up. And then I fly back up to Vancouver to do another holiday movie. Um, and then I'll be back down here to do another holiday movie because this is around the time where we start getting the holiday movies shot so we can deliver them in time for the holidays. You know, the Christmas season, October. Right. <laughs> when, that's when they want us to deliver them. So um, so we got to get started now. So. Do you feel making Christmas movies, because I have this personal feeling that because when you work on them, you see decorations as early as April, mm-hmm. that by the time it comes around to real Christmas, I'm kind of like, I don't need to see a tree. Yeah, I well. I don't yeah. even decorate anymore. Oh, I don't. Honey, I never bought a tree. Maybe when I was a kid, we'd see it and the family would get, but I was never much of that. Um, you know, uh, no, no, it's just, I mean, I, I did on, I did a film for Ion called Runaway Christmas Bride and I found snow in May 
um, in uh, Mount Washington on Vancouver Island to do my ski resort Christmas rom-com. So I was actually able to do real snow because, as you know, it's tough doing it's tough doing Christmas movies in L.A. in April, May, because it's, you know, blazing, starting to be blazing hot. And you have to figure out Christmas in Palm Springs or Christmas in San Diego or Christmas in L.A. or Beverly Hills. Well, and sometimes the movie gods do not smile on you because I have written movies to be filmed in Buffalo in February because, of course, it's always snowing there, except when we go to shoot. That's yeah, it's it. fucking cold, but it's not snowing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sometimes it's so cold. I mean, I lived in Winnipeg for five years doing a lot of movies up there. Sometimes it's so cold, it, there's no precipitation. It can't snow because it's so cold. So wow. it's, yeah, it's that weird snow. You're going to be very lucky to find snow. It's, it's no matter where you are, I think. So in this career of many films across many genres with many different creatures and, and grand dames and all sorts of mm-hmm. ephemera, uh, is there a movie of yours that you wish more people had seen? What? Knock, knock Em Dead. Knock Em Dead. Knock Em Dead, written by Barry Sandler, the writer of Making Love and uh, The Mirror Cracked and Crimes of Passion, starring Radon Chong, uh, Anne-Marie Johnson, uh, Deborah Wilson, Jack A. Harry, Phil Morris, uh, Christopher Judge, Betsy Russell, Daniel uh, Bernhard. Um, it's a manor house uh, murder mystery thriller, and we decided to go all black with it. And um, it uh, is funny as hell. We had a little theatrical, some VOD. It was on Netflix for a couple of years. Um, it's my favorite movie um, that I've done. Um, I don't look at my movies very much. I've seen that one and actually sat in the theater and watched it play in front of an audience. Always got a really good laugh. <clears throat> so I'm really proud of that one, Knock Him Dead. It's very funny. Uh, and Barry wrote an amazing script. And, um, you know, it's... You know, I shot it in five days and oh, oh, and by the way, <laughs> the opening sequence, not to give any of the spoiler alert, um, my Drew Barrymore scream moment is Omarosa at the beginning of Knock Em Dead gets her head chopped off. Oh, <laughs> recently <laughs> fired from the Trump administration, Omarosa. It's so funny because she's a sweetheart, you know, so I don't know how all that stuff. But all I know is she uh, was in on the joke, a Knock Em Dead, and uh, was very funny, and uh, she gets her head chopped off. So you got to see Knock Em Dead just to see Omarosa's head get chopped off at the beginning. So it's on all the platforms, so check it out. Well, we have mentioned many of your movies over the course of this interview. Mm-hmm. Leather Jacket Love Story, The Brotherhood Films, Nightmare Sisters, Creepazoid, Dream Maniac, Knock em Dead. Listeners, check it out. Check out all of David's movies that we've talked about and more. Uh, where can people find you? Rapidheart.com R-A-P-I-D-H-E-A-R-T.com um, Rapidheart.tv is my YouTube channel. Um, I'm on all the platforms, including Vimeo. But if you go to rapidheart.com, that'll take you to wherever you need to go. You'll just click it through. So, But thank you very much, Michael. I love uh, your show. A lot of traffic is coming to this platform because of you. And there's one thing about Michael Verratti. You're a hell of a writer. You're a fanboy, but you know how to get the word out. And I tell you, I've loved your podcast. Sam Irvin, a dear friend of ours, nicest guy in the movie business. His great podcast. I mean, great to interview. Um, David DelVal's interview is great. I love this podcast. And uh, I hope uh, Reverie, Reverie is taking care of you because uh, you're bringing a lot of traffic to this platform. Well, thank you so much, David. That means a lot coming from you. And, you know, I adore your work. I adore you. And I was so glad to have you come and join us today and talk about your career and, and 
just take the time because I know you're a busy guy. So. Absolutely. I, re- I really appreciate the invite and we should do this again. I'm sure you and I, between the two of us, can come up with a really delicious part. I'm sure we can. Well, until then, thank you so much. This has been Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, or as always, in Glam and Gore. Good night and good luck.